0: Chapter 7 of Pioneer Work in the Alps of New Zealand by Arthur Paul Harper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Timmerman VAUGHN. Chapter 7 Cook River, Fox Glacier. Slight mishap. Douglas, the Chancellor Ridge. Victoria Glacier. Kias. Fogged again. Even when out of the ranges, our communication with the civilized world was casual a weekly pack-horse mail came as far as gillespie's beach and was generally punctual except when rain put some of the rivers in flood which occurred about twice out of five trips and then we had to be thankful if there was only a week's delay in addition to this many of the inhabitants at gillespie's are not on speaking terms and as we relied on the thoughtfulness of someone coming up to the hut to bring our letters it often happened that the person who came had not been to the post office because he was not on good terms with the people there on returning from the balfour valley we found letters awaiting us in the hut urging that our reports be completed and sent to the office in hokitika before we again went into the ranges this took some days and when I had completed my portion of the writing, I decided to go to the Fox Glacier and work there until Douglas had finished his report and could join me. Regardless of possible bad luck, I left Ryan's hut on All Fool's Day, 1894, with Johnny Ryan, taking food for a fortnight, batwing, etc., in two 40-pound loads on a pack horse. The snout of the Fox Glacier, which lies 670 feet above sea level, is easily reached, but at present a horse cannot be taken within a mile of the ice if however a track was cleared through the bush there would be little need of formation and a horse could go to the terminal face with little trouble At a mile and a half below the glacier i sent ryan back with the horses as they were of no further use and leaving one load to bring up later i started up the river with the other the traveling was rather rougher than i expected and it was two p m before I found a good camping place amongst some marrata bushes near a tributary creek, returning for and bringing up the second load occupied another two hours, leaving just enough daylight to clear a space and pitch the bat wing when there is a probability of staying more than one night in a camp, We put some flat stones under the fire to keep it dry, and also a few between the bedding and the fire, as it is more comfortable and cleaner than the bare, damp ground intending to be here for a week at least i made the camp as snug as possible before dark and having had a meal proceeded to read the papers which had come up by the mail before i left ryan's the fox glacier had been visited during the previous twenty-five years by many who were either in search of fine scenery or gold but no one had been beyond the terminal face the map then existing as in the case of most of the western watershed was made from distant trigonometrical stations on the sea bluffs and lower hills, and I anticipated some interesting work on such a large field of virgin ice. It was a decided drawback being alone, but still one man can do a great deal by himself with due care, even on a glacier. The valley is broader than that of the Franz Joseph. The northern side rises nearly sheer from the ice, in high precipitous hills a considerable amount of bare, ice-worn rock showing here and there through the dark vegetation. The southern side for the first three miles slopes gently back from the glacier for some distance, showing several old lateral moraines and terraces to the foot of Craig's Range, which rises abruptly for some 3,000 or 4,000 feet. The terraces and hillsides are clothed with dense bush and scrub to the usual altitude. On the right-hand side of the terminal face, when approaching the glacier, A large isolated rock stands in the center of the valley, which appears to be a perfect cone from below, but is in reality a narrow, glacier worn ridge of nearly a mile in length. The ice, which, at a comparatively recent date, divided and flowed down on each side of the rock, now only flows along its northern face. The cone rock, as we named it, is 825 feet from base to summit, and shows marks of abrasion by ice all over it. With a number of huge erratic boulders strewn along its narrow ridge these however are not seen until one is on the top because the trees grow to a considerable size wherever they can obtain a hold on the south side a large creek coming off craig's range down a steep course flows against the cone and is turned at right angles to its original direction and continuing along the foot of the rock for a mile joins the main river a few yards below the glacier about half a mile from the river up this creek i made my camp at the foot of the cone rock in a nice patch of rata trees the first thing to do next morning was to ascend the rock and obtain a good general view of the glacier to form some idea of the route to take up the ice on reaching the top i found it heaped with large erratic blocks lying in hopeless confusion on one another along the narrow ridge and sometimes from their size and position rather troublesome Fine rata trees were growing amongst and on the top of these, and prevented my getting a clear view or opening for a photograph. I generally use my eye axe, by an arrangement of my own, for a camera stand, never carrying a tripod, as we must economise weight in every way. Here, however, a stand would have been useless, for the trees were too large, so climbing a rata until I could overlook its neighbours i arranged cross-sticks between two branches and made three exposures one of which ultimately proved very good the others having been spoilt by movement from such a central position as the cone a capital idea of the glacier can be obtained of the dividing range glacier peak and Hedinger could be seen rising out of the neve while more to the right the top of tasman was visible over craig's peak from the neve the ice descends over a good ice-fall part of which is in view from the cone and thence, for three or four miles, the glacier flows, white and smooth, to the terminal face. Two small portions of broken ice form the only apparent obstacles to easy travel as far as the great icefall. In the map then existing, the Fox Glacier was shown as flowing down in two large streams, divided by the Chancellor Ridge, a branch of the Bismarck Range. The southern ice flow drained the dividing range, and the northern came from the snowfields of Bismarck's Peak i had fully anticipated a magnificent view of two great ice-falls descending on each side of the chancellor ridge and joining at its base but there was nothing of the kind visible from the cone presumably because the northern stream or victoria glacier flowed at a lower level and joined the fox without an ice-fall below the chancellor ridge the descent of the glacier is gradual not nearly so steep as the franz joseph and its course is over a smoother bed, no obstacles, apparently, to cause such broken waves and undulations as were seen on its neighbor. Having decided on the best route to follow in order to reach the Chancellor Ridge, I climbed from my high perch in the rata tree to the ground. Though not very superstitious, I have one or two harmless ideas about luck, and one is that the first of April is an unlucky day to start on an expedition. However, up to this point all had gone well. I had a good camp, plenty of provisions, the promise of a day or two of really fine weather, and a fine glass to explore. But such good fortune was not to last, for on descending from the top of the cone I had to go along a ledge overhanging a drop of about twenty-five feet, in the middle of which a single tree had to be passed. Catching a branch in one hand, I was in the act of swinging round on the outside when the limb broke, and sent me backwards over the drop at the bottom of which I landed, with one leg somewhere under my back before rising i naturally looked at my camera which was under me with some apprehension and found it unhurt but on getting up to go on the pain in my ankle showed that it had been badly twisted there is only one thing to do in a case like this namely keep moving to prevent the joint from stiffening an hour's hobbling brought me to camp where i filled the billy with water cut two days supply of firewood and generally fixed up the camp before resting within a quarter of an hour of sitting down, I could not put my foot to the ground, and had the pleasure of lying in camp during the third and fourth before I could move about at all freely. An accident like this, though slight, would be quite enough to lead to fatal results if it occurred far away from camp, because no anxiety would be felt by those on the low country for a week or two at least. Generally, indeed, two or three months might pass before a search party would be organized, as we often do not know how long we are going to be away even allowing that a search party was sent out within a week or two, they would not know where to begin operations, as the country would only be known to the object of their search. Douglas, who has in the past done most of his explorations alone, has been fortunate, except in one or two cases, one of which would have proved fatal but for his extraordinary pluck and determination. It was, if I recollect rightly from his account, in the seventies, that he was crossing the swamp between the Karangarua and Cook River, Jumping from niggerhead to niggerhead, when he slipped and sprained his ankle badly. He only had a little oatmeal with him, and was nearly two weeks before he could get to Hunt's Beach, the nearest habitation. On coming some days after to the river Karangarua he found it was rising, for rain had been falling, but in spite of his ankle and the fact that he couldn't swim, he crossed that evening and reached the hut thoroughly exhausted he says it was a case of neck or nothing because had he not crossed that night the river would have been too high and a day or two more of exposure would have been too much for him had he had any matches to kindle a fire he would have got on much better but even though it had been raining most of the time he was without fire and only a little shelter making a crossbow he killed two pigeons but the bow soon lost its spring and except these two birds he had to rely on three pounds of oatmeal and a chew or two of tobacco had the accident occurred in the bush probably more birds could have been obtained and a good shelter built but this was in an almost open swamp the fact that my little mishap and douglas's accident turned out to be harmless is no excuse for working alone nor does it alter the rule that a man should never go into rough country away from habitation by himself but we cannot always act according to rules, however sound they are. It is often a choice of doing the work alone or not at all, and if no one took any risk, the country would be unexplored for years. I must plead guilty to having done a fair amount of solitary work, and to liking it quite as well as, if not better than, with a companion, but I admit that it is a mistake. On the fifth, I went up the glacier some three miles, to a point where the icefall could be seen to advantage. The route lay up the creek from camp, for half a mile or so, to the upper end of the Cone Rock, though at the time I did not anticipate more than three hundred yards before reaching the ice. A few chains below the end of the rock, the creek-bed turns at right angles up Craig's range, from which it flows, and at the bend there is an old watercourse from the glacier into the creek, down which there has been an outflow of water from the ice at no distant date. By taking this route, a rough piece of going is avoided, caused by the cone rock having compressed the glacier into a narrow channel as far as the ice is concerned one can get on or off almost anywhere along the sides except where high rocky precipices render it impossible to land travelling on the glacier is easy to anyone accustomed to ice-work and it only has to be left once in order to skirt a small ice-fall nearly three miles up here there was so late in the year a short piece of complicated work amongst crevasses About a mile and a half from the terminal face, there is a quarter of an hour of roughish ice, which had to be maneuvered rather carefully, but which would give no trouble whatever earlier in the year. Soon after midday, I had reached the small icefall, and having thus far seen no sign of the ice of the Victoria Glacier, I began to suspect some great error in the map. Landing on the south side, immediately below the rough ice, thirty minutes climbing and crawling over large boulders, forming a lateral moraine, brought me to the rocky point of a spur, off Craig's Peak, round the foot of which the glacier bends. From this point of vantage, looking across to the Chancellor Ridge, it was evident that no tributary ice stream joined the main glacier, nor, indeed, did it appear that any glacier existed behind the ridge, because no water was visible coming over the rocks. The glacier is narrower here than its neighbor, but its total average width is slightly more. The surface ice is good, and though hummocky, is fairly free from crevasses. The only surface moraine is at the terminal face, which is covered from side to side for perhaps 150 yards up the glacier. It would be necessary to cross over the Chancellor Ridge in order to settle the doubt concerning the Victoria Glacier, but my ankle was still too weak for a long day's work, so I returned to camp. On the following day, I got up at dawn, intending to take blanket and provisions for a bivouac on the Chancellor Ridge, but the foot was still stiff and required another day's spell. Therefore, after going halfway up to a small icefall, I gave it best and went back to camp. It was evident that the sore ankle would not allow much work if I carried even a light load, so I decided to only take a quarter-plate camera and one day's food and trust to luck, in the shape of a good stone. If necessary, to sleep out on the Chancellor Ridge, leaving camp at dawn or 6 a.m. on the seventh, I reached the rock bluff below the icefall in two hours and went on to the foot of the fall to see if any practicable route could be found up to the neve. Though not stupendously broken as the upper part of the Franz Josef, the icefall of the Fox Glacier would be better left alone, as the seracs are large and constantly falling. Turning back again towards the lower end of the Chancellor Ridge i intended to cross it and if possible go up some peak or saddle on the bismarck range to command a view of the fritz glacier and head of the Waikukupa river at the lower end of the ridge it was easy to reach the side which is of smooth rock sloping gently under the ice about above and below the glacier is lined by sheer and in places overhanging precipices of four hundred or five hundred feet in height at the foot of this rocky wall the ice flows level and unbroken it was not rotten or crevassed as is the usual case at the side of a glacier in one place it was possible to walk up to the foot of the cliff and standing on the ice lean my back against the rock only a foot or less space intervening the ice is evidently of great depth at the side here which accounts for its unbroken surface and the rock must be perpendicular for a considerable distance below the level of the glacier it was now evident that there was a fair-sized glacier in the valley between the Chancellor Ridge and the Bismarck Range, as a large stream of dirty water fell over the precipices, making a fine waterfall. It had worn a curiously shaped funnel down the face, which completely hid the stream until quite close to it, and which accounted for my not seeing it from the opposite side of the glacier. The old saying, more haste, less speed, is generally true, but never more so than a new country as I have often found to my cost. After leaving the ice and being in too great a hurry to reach a good point of view into the valley beyond the Chancellor Ridge, I began to climb up and across the lower end of the spur. This is very steep and rotten, and the whole face being shattered rock. It was not without considerable trouble that I reached the Arete, having got into one or two decidedly ticklish places. In half an hour I topped the ridge, and could see into the valley beyond, where lay... 300 feet below me the victoria glacier slightly over four miles in length and about 30 chains in breadth covered with a very heavy surface moraine for a third of its length this glacier comes off the bismarck range from bismarck's peak and mount Anderig, with two tributary glaciers from the chancellor ridge on the south and from a long offshoot of andrig on the north it flows past the end of the chancellor onto a plateau 3685 feet lying at the top of the perpendicular rocky wall already described which rises out of the fox glacier large erratic boulders lie scattered on the plateau amongst dense mountain scrub and grass showing that in the past the victoria found its way over the cliffs to the main ice flow of the fox as it exists at present the victoria is as perfect an example of a small primary glacier as could be found with its little neve tributary ice streams and complete system of surface lateral and terminal moraines i had been looking for a likely alpine pass to the tasman valley since the beginning of the season and had come to the conclusion that for all practical purposes the franz joseph glacier had better be left alone so far as its lower extremity was concerned there now appeared to be a good route up the victoria glacier over a low call to the head of the fritz glacier and thence behind roon to the head of the melchior a branch of the franz joseph glacier and then across the broad neve basin of the latter over graham's saddle near de la beche down the rudolph glacier to the tasman i had been close up to graham's saddle from the tasman and knew the franz joseph glacier and the victoria so excepting the call over the bismarck range there was little new ground to cover therefore while i was in christchurch during the winter following this trip i tried to persuade someone to come and make this pass and though Mr. Fife arranged to join me, he was at the last moment unable to do so. However, I am glad to say I ultimately had the satisfaction of being one of the party to make the first complete pass, as will be seen later, when I told Mr. Fitzgerald of the route and with him and Zerbrigan crossed it a year later. Ever since sunrise I had been the object of considerable attention from some kias or mountain parrots. At first only two or three, but afterwards their number had increased to fifteen or more. They joined me on the south side of the fox glacier and annoyed me considerably by their inquisitiveness while I was taking some bearings and photographs, one of them alighting on my back just as I was looking through the compass. These birds are not found except in high country and their eggs are very rare as they probably choose some crevice in the face of a precipice for their nesting-place. They have cruel beaks and great power in them being able to tear any cloth with a single stroke but are tame and harmless except in certain localities where they kill sheep this weakness of theirs has given them a bad name and it is generally supposed that all kias are naturally inclined to attack sheep such however is not the case the fault lay in the first instance with shepherds or persons who had to skin the sheep on a station kias naturally feed on berries but they are possessed of an intense desire to investigate everything they see and if possible tear it with their beaks consequently near homesteads in otago and canterbury when they see sheepskins hanging up to dry they go down to examine them if the skins are carefully cleaned little harm results but if not the kias have a chance to taste the fat and when once a kia tastes fat he is a ruined bird and would sell his soul if he had one to get more to satisfy this craving he attacks the sheep with fatal effect causing in some localities very heavy loss to the stations these birds when attacking live sheep settle on the back of the animal and deliberately drive their beaks into the skin until they have reached the kidney fat they never wound a sheep in any other part of the body end of note the birds are not migratory and as far as i have been able to ascertain rarely leave the valleys they live in this is evidenced by the fact that while some stations lose many sheep owing to the kias An adjoining owner may suffer no loss whatever owing to the fact that the birds have not learnt the taste for fat when crossing the chancellor ridge the kias which i referred to followed me on the wing but owing to the ice being very slippery my progress was too slow for them therefore alighting on the ice they began to follow on foot whenever a kia makes its appearance we are prepared for some good fun as their actions are most ludicrous and their conversation which is incessant, is almost expressive enough to enable one to understand what they mean. I have had considerable experience with these birds, but have never seen such an intensely funny proceeding as on this particular morning. The Kiyas having settled on the ice, began to follow in a long straggling line, about fifteen of them. They have a preternaturally solemn walk, but when in a hurry they hop along on both feet, looking very eager and very much in earnest to see these fifteen birds hopping along behind in a string, as if their very lives depended on keeping me in sight, was ridiculously comic. The ice was undulating, with little valleys and hummocks, and the birds would now, for a second or two, disappear into a hollow, and now show up on a hummock, pause for a moment, and then hop down again out of sight into the next hollow. To judge by their expressions and manner, they were in a great state of anxiety, on emerging from a hollow onto a hummock as to whether i was still there now and then the one in front would appear craning his neck and on seeing me still ahead would turn round and shriek yah as much as to say it's all right boys come up and along and the others putting their heads down would set their teeth and travel all they knew a fat one in the rear evidently making very heavy weather of it on the chancellor ridge they became offensively inquisitive and I really could hardly take any photographs owing to their anxiety to ascertain the maker's name on my camera. However, such is the perversity of affairs in general, that it was only when it occurred to me that a picture of ten or fifteen kias examining my ax would be interesting, that they suddenly seemed to remember an appointment elsewhere, and disappeared. Had the idea occurred a few minutes earlier, a good picture could have been obtained. After having descended to the Victoria Glacier, i saw a small cloud appearing on craig's range which warned me that the usual fog was coming so i hastened back to the ridge and along it to a point from which i could get a view over the neve of the fox glacier the climb gradually developed into a race with the mists creeping up the valley behind me on reaching the top i was rewarded by a momentary but magnificent view of hadinger and the great northern face of tasman before the fog descended like a curtain and shut everything from view leaving no time to take a photograph i have been fortunate enough to have been all over the central part of our alps and to have seen the great peaks both far and near from every side and i think the northern face of mount tasman is as fine as anything i know except perhaps mount sefton it rises out of the neve of the fox glacier in great round precipices capped with hanging glaciers and the graceful curves of the summit are unsurpassed for beauty When the fog had once closed in and shut out surrounding objects, it is really little use waiting for it to clear, but for some reason I always hope against hope, and spend a miserable hour or two under a rock before finally giving it up as useless. On this occasion I stayed for nearly two hours on the side of the ridge, now and then catching a fleeting glimpse of the main glacier far below me, winding in ghostly whiteness down the valley and beyond the sea, with its two or three lines of breakers crawling in towards the beach. Of the upper portion of the valley nothing was again visible, beyond one tantalizing peep of Tasman's mighty shoulders appearing over the fog. At one-thirty I could not see an object fifteen yards away, and the dry fog changed to a wet mist, a sure sign of an approaching storm. So I began to cast about for a shelter in which to spend the night, and from which to make an ascent on the Bismarck Range if the morrow proved fine. However, in half an hour, the drifting mist having wetted my clothes completely, I gave up all idea of staying out for the night, and decided to get back to my camp without delay. End of chapter 7